Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Bounded Context. I'm your host, Ryan Straver. With me today is Elizabeth Hendrickson, founder and CEO of Curious Duck Digital Laboratory. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you and to be here. Well, awesome, Elizabeth. Well, tell our, tell our listeners, what do you do at Curious Duck and kind of what kind of problems are you solving there? Yeah, so Curious Duck, uh, it, I am building a simulation of software development. It's, it's a stocks and flows system simulation that shows work flowing through a, a system. So you have a team, they have a backlog, they're doing work, work flows through the system. Uh, and the reason I wanted to build this to begin with was because I noticed that software development is kind of nonlinear. Like you make small changes and they have a big effect on the outcome. You make what you think are big changes to how you work and there isn't a big effect. Why is this? Why is it so hard to reason about? Um, and an example of this would be if you're having trouble shipping software and you notice that um, the CI system just constantly seems to be a bottleneck, it is very tempting to say, okay, well, we'll just shove, you know, we'll, we'll wait and test a whole bunch of things all at once so that we don't have to run that really slow CI system as often. And that may seem like it's a very logical approach to uh, dealing with that bottleneck. Um, but the implication then is that you're going to find more bugs and it actually ends up taking longer to ship. Um, so that's an example of the nonlinear property of software development and what I'm trying to model with this simulation. It's kind that's, of fun. That is crazy fun. So, so, so tell me, how did you build up enough knowledge um, to know how to, to even tackle that sort of problem? Well, I have been in the industry for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote my first line of code in 1980, and I did keep seeing patterns. And then I, I many, many years later, as I, I'd seen these patterns, but I got introduced to um, uh, systems thinking and to theory of constraints. Uh, so Eli Elihu Coldrat's work yeah. um, and Jerry Weinberg taught me a lot about systems thinking, uh, and I was very influenced by like Peter Senge and others. Um, and I started realizing, oh, oh, I get it now. <laughs> it's feedback, and um, uh, that that uh, CI system is a, a constraint. It's a it's a bottleneck, but it's a constraint in terms of theory of constraints. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I I built up enough context to even think about it. And then I was inspired, or, or I inspired is probably the wrong word. I got a bee in my bonnet. Like I could not get this idea out of my head. Um, after a, a series of releases where we faced exactly that kind of challenge, where we were struggling to ship software um, and trying to figure out what we needed to change about the system because it really was a whole system effect. And I kept feeling like, oh, I wish I could, I wish I could model this so that as we're having debates about batch size and um, what we should do to solve this problem, that we could just sort of model it and see what it would look like. And that was the genesis of building this thing, which I thought was a simple, tiny little thing. And it turns out it's not. Wow. Wow. What involves humans, right? And, and multiple peoples and roles all working on the same thing, right? It's, those are always the hard parts. Yeah, always. Well, so, so describe for me your, your approach as you think about like, if you need to build a model, like how do you go about coming up with that? Like walk us through sort of your approach to sort of problem solving. 
Yeah. Um, well, my I guess the first thing I do is naively jump in feet first, just assuming that it won't be that hard. <laughs> but then once I discover that it's a little bit harder, um, I, I my general approach is very iterative. I set an intention that I think is close enough that I could actually achieve it. I have sort of an overarching vision for where I want to go, but that's way too big to solve as a problem. Um, and so I'll, I'll pick something that I think gets me on that path towards that larger thing. And I set an intention for a change that I want to make or a, a, an effect that I want to have or a thing I want to implement or make possible within the, the simulation. Uh, and then um, I sometimes I find out that's still too big and I, okay, take small steps. No, even smaller than that. Um, and then I, uh, this is where it's going to sound a little bit weird, but I realized that I always have an evolving decision tree in my head where I kind of have a plan A, but I also have a, well, if that's not going to work out, plan B, C, D, E, et cetera. Um, and then as I make my way through problem solving, that decision tree obviously continuously evolves because with each step, some possibilities become irrelevant or impossible and others emerge. And so I have this perpetually evolving decision tree in my head. And this is true whether we're talking about writing software or talking about leading a, an organization, because I've also done yeah. that. Um, and then I, I, with each step that I do achieve um, uh, uh, towards that, that objective, I'm always reflecting on, okay, I, I set this tiny little step, but is that still on target for the larger objective? Um, or did I discover that I actually now find myself in a path that's going to run parallel and never quite converge to where I thought I wanted to go. Um, and for that matter, is where I thought I wanted to go still the right objective? Or is it actually that isn't shouldn't be aiming that way, need to adjust the, the larger objective? And um, how, uh, how do I feel about how uh, this last thing went? Um, so I'm constantly kind of reflecting and then recentering on the next set set a next intent, intention and do that all over again. So it's a very iterative, iterative approach to problem solving. That's pretty fascinating. As you were saying, the decision tree, you know, in my vernacular, that's, those are like options. Like you're constantly coming up with different options to explore, right? You, you yep. pick one either a little bit or you back out or mm, let's get yep. more that opens up more options. You know, let me ask you, you know, it's, it's funny. Our, our approaches are, are, are very similar um, to each other. I've been influenced by the original and we talked about the original um, agile folks, the XP community, and yeah. some of the folks like you go even further back than that. Tom Gilb has been a big influence on um, myself and others. And it's something I, I've, I've noticed and, and I've seen evolve is, you know, basically we have folks who came up through that sort of, you know, community and we're interested in development, but ultimately got interested in these larger things around systems and, and, and architecture and those sort of things. How is the approach you just described, which is just constantly like, trying things out, figuring it out, internally balanced and going, how much of that has sort of evolved along the way versus how much of that do you sort of attribute back to kind of the way you've always naturally sort of worked, even from the sort of the beginning of your career? Yeah, I, I feel like that general approach of always having a decision tree in my head, I can remember times when I was like seven or eight years old and I oh, wow. remember of, of having that same sense. So I think that wherever it came from, kind of came with me as a person yeah. but 
in terms of like what options I perceive, that has been super influenced by by learning from others. There, there are just options that I would not see if I hadn't been introduced to like Jerry Weinberg or the work of Elihu, Elihu Goldrat. Or um, these days, I'm also very influenced by the DevOps community, Nicole Forsgren, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, t- to me, the, the interesting part of that evolution is as we think about going from sort of like working like we come from software development background right so we first apply these things on things we can control like small steps like write a unit test and, and check it in then ultimately you start doing that on a bigger stage the architecture and there's people under you. you you you're no longer doing it you're trying to influence others and then once you get to the organizational level then you're influencing people to do this on multiple projects to do it on small scales how has how is the method you described and you're like translated as you worked up those levels from sort of developer to presumably sort of architect, designer, systems thinker to people leader? How is how is your approach sort of evolved over that arc? Oh, I like to say people are hard and I'm a people too. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is really important to acknowledge is that not only am I, if I'm a, in a leadership position, and and I was at, at Pivotal, I held a leadership position for a number of years, uh, I, I, a fairly large-ish organization, uh, 170 people ultimately in the, the data organization that I was responsible for. And the thing is that it wasn't just me influencing the organization, I was also influenced. And one of the things that I had to realize uh, uh, was it's super critical as a leader to figure out who to listen to. Um, and, and I remember a situation where, you know, speaking of that decision tree, we had a, a product, um, I think I'm allowed to tell this story because it's all totally out in the open source. Um, so Greenplum, it is a massively parallel data warehouse that was originally forked from um, Postgres because there was a time when that was the, the hot thing that you did. Yeah. You took Postgres and you forked it to turn it into a massively parallel thing. Um, and uh, Greenplum had its roots uh, in that time, and it had been a hard fork for a lot of years. And at the mo- at that at this time that I'm thinking of, uh, we had to figure out what we were going to do next. And there were a lot of hot debates inside the organization. Oh, we should get hot new technology for an executor. We should slowly be hollowing out the Postgres DNA and and building something because we can build something much cleverer. There was one camp of people who strongly believed that we, um, the best hope and and path to success for Greenplum lay in the direction of we're going to invent all new things. And we're just going to slowly replace the the architecture, the component pieces and parts of this relational database system with things that we invent because we could do this better at scale. And then there was another camp that said, you know, uh, Postgres community has come a long way since the time that we had a hard fork and they have added really cool capabilities that we don't have and that we can't, we, it's not something where we could just change out the engine because that's not that's not how a hard fork works it's we had changed every other line of code it was forked um but uh hey if we could find a way to merge those changes back in so there were these two very strong camps 
And as I listened to all the arguments, now I, I also have to confess, I, I thought I knew something about databases because I worked at Sybase way back in the day. It turns out, no, I did not. <laughs> I arrogantly, I, I, I did that thing. I jumped in feet first, believing that I knew how to tackle this and got in there and realized, no, I did not understand. I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I, I certainly wasn't going to be like the brilliant one to come up with all the ideas. That would have been wholly irresponsible on my part to even remotely believe that I could do that. But I did have to figure out how to steer us as a whole organization. Like if I just left it alone and let people battle it out, it was going to be chaos. That's not fair. That would turn the organization into sort of a political Lord of the Flies landscape. Um, and that's not okay. So we had to figure out how these are two very divergent paths that we could yeah. take. And so this is where that, that like decision tree probabilities in my head constantly kind of going as I weighed the um, the debates that had been raging. And then I thought about, well, what is what is our objective collectively? We're trying to, to um, uh, this is a beloved product by, it's it was, you know, at the time it was fairly niche. It was beloved, but by a small-ish number. But there's so much potential in this product. It, it is frankly an amazing feat of engineering to get it to do what it does. What is the best way to make that more uh, powerful for more people? That was kind of the guiding principle, the the larger objective. And you can, you know, talk in terms of sales and revenue, et cetera, which was also very important. But even if you just think about it, like in terms of how do we make this something that would be uh, uh, appealing to a broader set of, of um, uh, ent uh, organizations, entities, companies, what whoever is adopting Greenplum? No, nobody um, in a household like consumer context wakes up one day and says, "I know what I need. I need a massively parallel data warehouse." So our customers <laughs> were obviously, you know, enterprises. Yeah. Um, but that's when I realized, oh. What would increase the probability of greater adoption if it was more like Postgres? And so that was the path that we took. And we, it, holy snacks, that was hard. But we, we took that path and, and unforked it. And, it. and at this point, it is unforked. It is Greenplum is um, uh, now, I believe it's up to date. I haven't looked at the latest. And I've been out of, not involved in the project for a really long time. Um, but I believe that they did get up to the latest Postgres. Massive feat of engineering to make that happen. But coming back to how do I make decisions, it wasn't about me decision tree, figure out how to influence the organization. It had to start with me listen listening to all of those options. And then from there, it was my responsibility as a leader to help us choose a single path because we couldn't take multiple paths. That's just not feasible. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what are some of those lessons? I mean, you imparted some of them, which is listening and, and evaluating multiple options before sort of making a decision. What are some of those kind of le lessons that you've learned along the way that are sort of, you know, good as it relates to sort of problem solving? Yeah, uh, I would say one of the most important lessons that I've learned, uh, less from the, the Green Plum story, although this it was very important for the Green Plum story as well, um, but uh, even more in my own 
personal work, I've observed that small steps lead to momentum, that the places that I get wrapped around the axle are where my objective is too big. And I don't realize that I'm flailing until I've been flailing for days, if not weeks. And so uh, really taking the time to um, stop and reflect and figure out, wait, maybe that step is too big. Let's, let's, what's the next objective that's even closer. Um, and so really focusing on taking small steps, but reflecting frequently to create momentum, super important. Um, and the other thing is that focus is essential. And that actually, that also came out in the Green Plum story that I, I at the time that I got involved there, every team had its own set of objectives and we were just a little bit all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so having a, a cohesive vision for what we were doing, it's, it's important for me as a, a single individual founder working on the thing that I'm working on now, but it's also super critical for a much larger organization. If you don't have all the wood behind the arrow, you're not going to get that sense of traction um, that's going to enable you to really accomplish those larger objectives. Yeah, no, and, and, and I see it in in my work. Even we do workshops, we do sort of design thinking, sort of, you know, Mobius workshops. And inevitably, there's one, there's a Line on a problem statement is 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 a, is a big challenge, right? Because a lot of times people think they're solving different problems. And one of the things I've learned along the way is, can you sit down as a team and write a problem statement together? It sounds simple, surprisingly hard, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know. And so it's a, but it's a great exercise to introduce to see that. Listen, if if we as a team can't even align on what it is we're solving, we're, we we have no business debating. We should do this or or, or or should do that. And then once you can land on that one, then the question is like, how do you know that? Like who are your customers? Who are your users? That's another big thing that, you know, growing up as a software engineer, I was trained to think about requirements as like actors and, and use cases, the whole boot sort of method. And they were like stick figures that were drawn on things and arrows. But you you didn't talk to them. They, they wrote, they, they spoke in requirements as must that shall do this, that must do this. But it wasn't until I discovered later more design thinking where it's like, well, talk to the end users, have empathy. That was a whole light bulb for me because I was so focused on the just get the requirements and we're off in solution land to now evolving to sort of, yeah, go talk to people and, and, and feedback. I mean, how is that? Has, has that been a part of your work, the whole empathy and the people? And how is that? Where did that come in sort of along the way? Uh, ab- absolutely. In fact, I was chuckling inside my head when you said stick figure and and because I'm remembering a project that I was on back in late, late 90s where uh, it was mandated we were going to use UML and the lead engineer <laughs> on the the whatever the, the thing was that we were building at the time um, drew the mandated UML diagram. Uh, and so at, at the time, I, I was running the, the QA department and I was relying on getting these diagrams because it had been really hard to get information about the uh, underlying architecture of the system. Uh, this was in the day of, of very sharp division between development and QA. Um, and uh, all I, I was so excited to look at these UML diagrams and every single one of them, all of them for every component in the system had a little stick figure <laughs> pointing to a bubble and the bubble said run. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, but coming back to design thinking and empathy, I actually think that you totally can use whatever modeling language you use, whether it's whether it any of the UML style of diagrams or whatever. But you hit on the key thing. If if we're not 
actively working to uh, solve problems for um, uh, people, if we're not looking at it like a, 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 a through that lens, um, what are we even doing? And I, I think about that, that stick figure run project. And I think about how we really, the company ultimately folded. It's dead. It's long gone. It was sold for parts. It wasn't even acquired. Um, and I, uh, when I think about the core reason, I think that part of what happened is we got lost on what, what were we building and for who, and we cycled through many different business models but ultimately, we weren't really listening to what our uh, the people who were interested enough to talk to us, what they were uh, saying. Um, they would perk their ears up at certain aspects of our technology, and we would go, yeah, yeah, yeah but that's not important. That's a side note. And uh, but you're shiny, um, and it was it was such a struggle. So I guess you it's super critical to be listening carefully to what um, your, your market is telling you because the, the market will tell you what it wants. You just yeah. have to be listening for the signals. Steven, is it Steven Blank is his name, I think, um, was the yeah. influencer or part about, you know, the whole customer discovery part. That's where the whole you know, lean startup stuff, I had started to pick up that, I guess, in the mid-2000s or so. And, uh, you know, for me, that led to sort of discovery of like idea and design thinking, and that led to sort of you know, other things I learned a lot from Gabrielle um, as well. And to me, now it's so fundamental that we try to sort of incorporate that. And and unfortunately, you know, um, a lot of, I hate to say, stereotypical engineers and stuff would sometimes prefer that things are just written down. They don't talk to people and go figure things out, right? It's some naturally flop to it, but others sort of, you know, are shy. But I think that is an important part of problem solving is, you know, when I was in college, it's like, or even my early career, you were handed the requirements as if they were written down. All you have to do is do them. And, and what you learn over time is you have to go discover them. And depends on who you talk to, they may not align and agree with each other. And, and so that the, that whole process of uncovering things, I feel like is something that has also in our industry evolved from the CRC cards, right, of the early days, right. to sort of that to now discovery being like, it's okay to do a little bit of, of discovery. Um before you write. Unfortunately, the whole architecture and design stuff seems at some point along the way got squished or got pumped out. I see it coming back these days. But, you know, when I was growing up, it was big requirements, big architecture, long, long development time. Ho hopefully we got it right at the end. Right. And then it gradually evolved. But somewhere along the way, I feel like it kind of went from discovery to just start slinging code and and, and we'll think about design later. Has that been your, um, or, or have you, you, you've worked with different organizations than I have. So maybe you have a different take on that. Oh, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that, um, you know, I've seen every, every possible way that you could develop software. I'm willing to believe there are things I haven't seen yet, but I have seen a lot. And so I've seen organizations that did the big upfront giant marketing requirements document within a technical spec answers the marketing requirements document and, 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 um, and essentially it was the nightmare that fueled the agile uh, adoption because it had gotten so out of hand. There was so much bureaucracy uh, just to get a, a something out the door that frankly was entirely speculation. The feedback cycles were too long. Um, but then I've also totally seen the, oh, we're agile. We're, we'll just, 
we'll we'll get stuff out there, we'll fail fast, and we'll iterate, um, and seen that get to the point where what the organization has built um, essentially is a bunch of tinker toys and isn't going to be able to solve the problem long term and may not even be solving the right direction. Honestly, the best code you can write is the code you don't have to write because it turns out there was a simpler way to solve the problem. Yes, absolutely. And and that is another challenge that I see is if you love coding and come from that background, then have the discipline to, to say, I shouldn't write code here um, is another thing too, right? Early in your career, you, you, you know, you've worked with engineers like I have, you know, they, they still love writing code and who, who doesn't, right? That sometimes you'll take something that's straightforward and turn it into something without a bit of coaching and guidance and pairing. Like we've been talking about pairing on other things without that sort of mentorship there. It's easy to just code, 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 code versus like, what can we take away? And, and it'll still work. Oh, I still do that. I mean, <laughs> this is a lifetime struggle. Uh, on the Curious Duck stuff that I'm working on, I built the engine first. The engine is implemented entirely in pure Ruby as a gem. Uh, and um, I had built a whole lot of capabilities that I thought I was going to need when I started using that engine to power something that a user could actually interact with. But I was just playing, it was me and our spec um, uh, playing with this thing. And I'm so grateful to have had pairs on this. Uh, Davis Frank is the person who's paired with me the most on it. Uh, and uh, he started pairing with me and in, in, in the sessions that, that we would have, he would say, okay, what's this and why is it here? And I'd say, well, see, shiny. And he'd say, uh-huh. And how are you gonna use that? But shiny. <laughs> It's you just, it's, you don't understand. I never said, I hope I never said that. He will call me on it if I ever said, you don't understand. Like it's somehow his fault. Um, but having, I think that, that yeah, one of the things that I, I see about pairing is that um, a lot of folks have this idea that it's really only powerful if you've got a very junior person and a very senior person, because then mm -hmm. it's a mentoring thing. And instead I view it as you have to convince somebody else that your ideas are good. And as long as that is, uh, you know, feels like a very uh, egalitarian relationship, it's a collaboration, it's a true collaboration, as opposed to I'm, I'm in a position of weakness and I must convince you, oh, dear pair who knows so much more than I do, um, I, that, that's an unhealthy kind of situation. But, uh, but if it's like each of us have to bounce our ideas off this other person yeah. and get it out of our heads and out spoken out into the world and then have somebody react to it, it is an incredibly powerful way to make sure that you don't fool yourself into implementing shiny things. <laughs> and and it's, it's so funny you mentioned that, but yeah, you're right. A lot of times we think about pairing in the sort of the, the, the senior junior context, but having to explain and justify yourself to somebody else who's willing to be like, mm, you know, um, I see it on our projects. <laughs> play out between um, our UX designers and our, and, our, and our technical folks. And I learned early in my career, I was like, just make a decision, move on. But then I learned the UX in general will advocate for the most, the best user experience, almost ignorant of essentially what it will cost to do. And then the tech lead is going to argue for the simplest thing to sort of do. And then what I've learned is like, let them go at it. And they'll usually find some middle ground which is it isn't all the UX wanted, but it's closest enough. And it's pushes a tech lead, but it makes for a nice experience, but not in the form of like unmanaged complexity 
to make it happen. And that is, I think, when true collaboration with this respect happens and the customer ends up with a much better product in the end for, for essentially a budget versus, you know, going forever and ever on user experience. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, it, what you're highlighting to me is why it is so absolutely critical that um, uh, the, the notion of a balanced team where it's that they're all on the same team and they're bringing their their different areas of expertise and their skills and experience, et cetera, to the table. And it's not that everybody has to learn everything. It's more that that, that balanced team is in a position to collaborate. Whereas when you have these phases of we're going to do a design phase and then we're going to do the implementation phase. Well, design never, now, now you've got a super long feedback cycle. Design may have spec'd out something that's impossible practically to build. And now we go open loop because they've, they've handed off the design. They're, they're done with their part. Oh, no. So you're highlighting why it's so critical to view um, uh, this as a whole team effort where the team collectively is responsible for the delivery um, as opposed to phases and each each phase plays its part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you to sort of wrap it up. What are those topics that are top of mind for you these days? Kind of, you know, topics you're paying. You mentioned DevOps earlier. Some that's mm-hmm. obviously a huge umbrella of Huge. Lots and lots of things. So what are some of those topics you're kind of paying attention to these days? Honestly, the thing that's kind of out of left field is games, uh, game development. So the thing that I'm I'm building, it turns out it, it's actually, it, it's kind of a game. It's, it's not a super exciting game. It's not going to likely be something I ship on Steam. Um, nobody would want to probably buy it for the fun <laughs> of running a software development project. Um, but I've been super inspired by a lot of the uh, GDC is the game developer conference. It's the biggest game development conference that I am aware of. Um, and they've got a lot of their talks online. So I've been watching a lot of older GDC talks and learning about AI and dialogue management and uh, fuzzy matching to make your characters sound more natural um, and learning about uh, implementing decision trees in uh, games um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I've been interested in VR for a while. um, And so I'm, I'm super inspired by everything that, that it doesn't even have to be new because I wasn't in game development. I was in enterprise software development. It's about as far away as you can get. Um, But I'm super inspired by everything that I'm learning from the game development community. That's awesome. Yeah, you're, you're right. I feel like I'm in corporate, like, oh, you actually want to have fun with software? Like, we can have some fun, fun with software. Like, no, 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 no. You have to go back and do things like accounting and, and implementation with these boring, boring things. Um, that's awesome. That's awesome. So let me ask you, um, I always close with, what are you listening to these days? So music, podcasts, like what, what, do, you, what do you tend to have on your headphones? Oh, when I'm coding, I, I can't have information coming in and uh, and also concentrate on on producing something. Um, and so I play music. I have extremely eclectic taste in music. Uh, I knew you were going to ask, so I went and looked at my playlists, the stuff yeah. that I've been playing for the last week, and it's kind of all over the map. Yesterday, mm-hmm. I was listening to uh, Joan Osborne, uh, and so um, very indie kind of music. Um, but then in the last week, I've also listened to um, uh, In Excess, The Fix, classic 80s poppy stuff, um, uh, 
Hanson, classic 90s wow. kind of poppy stuff. Wow. Um, Imagine Dragons, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but also a lot of musical theater. Um, sadly, this week we lost Stephen Sondheim. Steven, yes. And so I was listening to Merrily We Roll Along um, and greatly appreciating the genius of Stephen Sondheim and his incredible ability with lyrics. Wow. Little known fact in college, I did sound production for Into the Woods. <gasps> oh, uh, how cool. Sound production. I did an okay job. I got to be in the class, but I hung out with the theater uh, department and group at, at my college and I was always doing stuff like that. But um Wow, crazy. Well, anyway, Elizabeth, it's been awesome to hang out with you. And um, hey, one last uh, quick question. But you mentioned something earlier. You picked Ruby. Like, I'm curious. Let's have a little dialogue about that oh, sure. sort of decision. I'm kind of curious. Is why if you it's something new you started these days? You picked Ruby. Why did you pick Ruby as a programming language um, for your for your product? Yeah, so I I did consider other languages. I have never been particularly good with uh, uh, C, C++, um, just really not my strength, and I don't enjoy it, which means that was, there's that's a family of languages that's out. I considered very briefly, Java did not really see any huge advantages to it. One of the constraints that I don't have is since the thing that I'm building, it's not, uh, I don't need it to scale right now. I may need it to scale later, and I am open to the possibility that I will have to rewrite this thing entirely in some other language. But for right now, I I value malleability of the code base over performance by a long way. And that meant to me, I was probably going to be really the only candidates that I seriously considered Java. Ruby, Python, um, uh, and JavaScript. Uh, those would be the the potential candidates. Now, there's a whole lot of other shiny languages that um, I've got people telling me that Phoenix and Elixir are amazeballs, and I should Rust, be doing that. Rust. Right, <laughs> <No>. exactly. <laughs> and um, while I love learning new things, I don't love learning just for the sake of learning. So being productive was also important. And so the four languages that I listed are ones that I've worked in enough that I felt confident that I would not be constantly just whacking my shin on the coffee table of learning uh, uh, the, the <laughs> basics of a language. Um, so, so like super shiny new things were out. Um, uh, and then when it, it came down to it, it really was about uh, my joy and productivity. I, I've never really been good enough at Java and have struggled more less with the language and more with the ecosystem. Um, uh, and similarly, JavaScript, I actually love the language, but as I have learned on this project with the website of the, the project, um, the ecosystem has been really interesting to navigate. Uh, and so that left Python and Ruby. Um, and of the two, uh, I am much more comfortable in Ruby. And then I also believed that I, I considered Django um, versus yeah. Ruby on Rails. But the other factor was, okay, what's what's the website going to be? There's there's what's the engine going to be, and how are things going to talk to the engine? And I did also consider having two different languages, one for the website and one for the engine, but ultimately decided to keep it all in the same family of things. And um, so Ruby and Ruby on Rails ended up being my choice largely for my own productivity. Cause I, like I said, I, I just don't, I, I would be learning Django from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm always often curious around that. You know, I, I came up of age in the, in the two thousands, I did job for about a dozen years and then I jumped on Ruby around 2007, eight, not time frame. 
and Ruby and, and Ruby on Rails specifically, I think was what drew everybody to Ruby. Um, and the, the freedom and the productivity and the just not typecasting. And it was a, it was a real pleasure. And as Ruby transitioned into the early DevOps days, you know, um, Chef was written in Ruby and a couple others, but then seemingly maybe it's just the circle and the circle I run in the enterprise. I don't see it quite as much um, um, anymore. I see Python as kind of becoming sort of the, the language if you're going to use, you know, in, interpreted um, sort of, you know, um, non-types sort of language. The data community has really pushed Python to, to kind of be the, it really came back around. I mean, my first job out of college was with a Python shop in the mid nineties. And then it kind of went out to wherever and then kind of came back with a vengeance seemingly with the data. Um, but Ruby, I just loved it. It was, it was a great language, still is a great language. It just, it's, I was curious as to these days, you know, if you're picking something new, why would you, why would you pick it? But for all those reasons, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so totally. If I were doing something super uh, data intensive, Python would have been my choice because yeah. that it, the the library. Honestly, it's less about eco or sorry, less about language and more about ecosystem for all of these languages. Yeah. So with NumPy and the Python community, um, there's just so much more support for data analysis in Python. Mm -hmm. So if I were doing something super data heavy. Python definitely would have been my choice. Um, I will give a plug for the most recent um, uh, innovations in Rails. Uh, coming back to it, it's 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 been wonderful to see how Rails has evolved. Yeah. And I'm um, using Stimulus uh, and Hotwire as opposed to trying to do a single page app and very, very much enjoying that and spent six weeks getting to the point where I could TDD my JavaScript for my Stimulus controllers. Wow. Um, but I, I'm, I'm finding that I can be super productive uh, in Rails in a way that maybe I could be if I knew Django, but I've been very happy. So I think that that I, I think that it's a totally reasonable choice if you are building something that lends, particularly if it lends itself to the original CRUD kind of app mm -hmm. that Rails was was originally very good for. But even if you're doing something that's a little bit weird, like what I'm doing, it doesn't fit a CRUD app like the normal bread and butter for Rails, but Rails has been um, really good from a productivity standpoint. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, cool. Thanks for the, the, the chat on that. I love that. I love those topics. So Elizabeth, thanks again for coming on the program. It's great to see you again. Oh, thank you, you so much. It's so great to see you too. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.